Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Do you need an awesome and underground space for an event? Look no further than MutinyRadio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 2781 21st Street. If you can think it, we can do it. I like that attitude. Hello and welcome to Women's Magazine. This is Global Val here, broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio here in San Francisco's Mission District, corner of 21st and Florida. You're welcome to come down and join us here sometime. We have live shows throughout the week. Common Thread Collective starts at 3 o'clock every Friday. That's a community open mic for music, poetry, activism, and all sorts of good stuff and warm, fuzzy feelings as we take on the the darker forces of the world with our positivity. And also, of course, there's lots of uh, great comedy shows. Every Friday night, there's Pam Tassik's Comedy Clubhouse from 8 to 10, and uh, And actually, coming up next Saturday, is going to be August 19th, is the 20th Street Block Party hosted by Noise Pop. So we're here on 21st Street, so we're just one block away. And we're going to have a day full of programming here at the station, 2781 21st Street. Uh, The Wyatt Act is going to be opening up at noon with a a hilarious, amazing set of, uh, I, I describe them as kind of like punk, funk, folk joke rock um the Wyatt Act um and all sorts of events coming uh through on Saturday August 19th so that's a week from today today is August 11th and um it's a beautiful day actually I hope you're out there enjoying life in some way shape or form even if these uh 
cosmic forces are getting getting you kind of worked up in one way or another. Um, I hope you're enjoying uh, the experience of being alive every breath. And so I'm going to play a little music for you to start. But in just a few minutes, we're going to get a very special phone call in from our friend, my friend, Dr. Sylvia Frain, who actually just finished her PhD in um, New Zealand at the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand. And she did her dissertation on Guam. So, um, you know, considering the the week of weak-ass threats uh, being thrown about by the uh, forces that happened to sit in a big cushy chair in Washington, D.C. and in Pyongyang, North Korea, uh, issuing threats to Guam, which is part of the United States, um, or at least a, a protectorate, a territory, so to speak. Um, we're going to get an expert on the phone today to tell us and tell us about Guam, because we often don't even think about Guam. Poor Guam. So I'm going to play a little music from the Pacific, uh, from our sister Mary Isis, from the big island over there in Hawaii. So, uh, we want to give thanks, so mahalo. I give thanks for life from my roots up to my crown. I give thanks for love that's within and all around. I give thanks for the rain, sacred waters of rebirth. I give thanks for the So oh. 
Mahalo. That's from Mary Isis of Nectarian Music. You can find her music on Bandcamp, maryisis.bandcamp.com. And uh, I don't know why you wouldn't. She's amazing. Um, She's been here in the studios of, of Mutiny Radio maybe about four years ago or so and totally changed, like transformed the whole uh, vibrational plane of this, of this uh, gritty little mission station. And uh, I'm forever grateful to Mary Isis and for her beautiful music as well and spirit. So speaking of beautiful spirits coming to us and visiting us from the the Pacific Ocean, uh, we're talking today about Guam, considering the recent threats that have been exchanged between the nominal leaders of North Korea and the United States in the past week. Um, So I've, I've, I've contacted my my own expert here, uh, Doctor of Peace, and conflict, but we'll emphasize the piece. Sylvia Frayne, who just finished her dissertation about Guam um, at the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand. Uh, welcome to Women's Magazine, Sylvia Frayne. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Val. Welcome back. It's been a while. <laughs> yes. But you have been across the ocean, so that's understandable. I'm glad you're back here in California, um, calling in from the field, so to speak, of Northern California, uh, Mm -hmm. to talk to us about the Pacific Ocean and some of the policies uh, surrounding the islands like Guam and the Northern Marianas and um, the the U.S. domestic and foreign policy uh, that affects these places and the people who live there, of course. So, welcome. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I would just like to begin by saying thank you to the people of the Marianas and Guam, the Chamorro and Carolinian populations who, without them, I would not have been able to finish my dissertation, looking specifically at resistance to ongoing uh, American colonization and expanding U.S. militarization in the region. What we're seeing this week is a very small snapshot of a long, 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 long history of U.S. occupation, uh, war, involvement. So we're dealing with so many issues um, and just reading the headlines this week, it's very exciting that Guam is being discussed in the the news, Um, but there are some problematic issues about how it's being portrayed, even the sheer number of people who live on the island. that one of the earlier news reports out of Fox News said that there were currently only 3,000 U.S. active military members on the island, which then <laughs> leaves out close to 160,000 U.S. citizens, because those living in Guam and the Marianas, those born are U.S. citizens. However, they don't have any direct uh, representation. So the Congress elected congressperson does not have voting rights. There is no um, other representation. They do not vote in U.S. presidential elections. So today I'd like to just kind of touch a little bit on the ongoing history, how everything is happening right now is has been at play for a long, long time. And then also just encourage your listeners um, to seek out 
uh, news sources and interviews with um, indigenous people from Guam. So what do the people who are living there day in and day out feel about this? We've heard a lot from military leaders. We've heard a lot from military contractors. Um, but I really encourage, there was an excellent interview earlier today um, on NPR with Amy Goodman. I would really um, suggest that one for people to get a broader picture of the whole story um, versus the the Fox News um, uh, <laughs> snippet, if you will. Yeah. Well, we certainly need more in-depth information and coverage because uh, the world of of news media is kind of these flash flash headlines and and often are misleading and uh, or if they try to tell a story uh, they certainly keep it brief and uh, seem to have you know certain agendas attached to them so we need more people like you who have dedicated the last few years of your life looking at U.S. military and, and foreign and domestic policy in the Pacific Ocean and kind of the strategy surrounding that. But the the history and the legacy of some of these policies um, on the people, um, because I think the people are often the ones that are overlooked uh, in the news. Yeah. So I, I guess just a quick overview, <laughs> if you will. So when we um, discuss Guam, it's important to remember that it's actually part of an archipelago, a 15-island archipelago. However, Guam is the largest of the islands, of the 15 islands, and is the most populated and has a different political status than the rest of the archipelago. So the 14 islands north of Guam are organized into a commonwealth political arrangement with the United States. So uh, similar to Puerto Rico, if you will, a commonwealth. So um, in uh, exchange for defense from the United States, um, the United States is able to maintain a presence there. That's in the, the Northern Islands. However, on Guam, it is considered an unincorporated territory of the United States. So... Um, there's about 4 million U.S. citizens who live in these territories around the world. Um, the situation in Guam is pretty unique because it is a highly, highly militarized place. So uh, one-third of the land is restricted land only for the U.S. military, um, whereas the local populations serve in the U.S. military at the highest rates per capita out of any state in America. I believe it's only second to America, Samoa, um, and another U.S. territory in the Southern Pacific. Um, but the situation in Guam dates back to the Spanish-American War, the uh, accumulation of overseas territories. So this was the time when um, the United States acquired Cuba, acquired the Philippines, uh, Puerto Rico and Guam. And it wasn't really the intent as a spoil of war to ever truly become incorporated or part of the United States. Its main goal was it served as a uh, fueling station um, in the Pacific. It served as a commercial port and it served as an overseas military installation. Uh, this is important because it comes into this gray area where you have these overseas U.S. military bases. Uh, there's over 800 
U.S. military bases beyond the continental United States, which I think is something that most Americans don't know. Um, an excellent resource to learn more about what this is considered the overseas military-based network is uh, a book by Professor David Vine, V-I-N-E, um, and the book is called Base Nation. And he really gets into the history and how we've come to be this, if you will, overseas empire maintaining these 800 plus plus military bases overseas. The situation with Guam is because it's a U.S. territory and it belongs to the United States, there, there isn't the same agreement, say, for our military bases in uh, Japan or in Korea or in Germany where you have an agreement between the two governments. For Guam, it's the United States negotiating on behalf of Guam. So this, this political status as an unincorporated territory really allows for this militarization to go unchecked. Um, it is a, a violation of international law, however, to remain as an unincorporated territory. According to the UN, the United States must help Guam achieve and, uh, and go through the process of self-determination to select a political status. Um, however, it is in the benefit of the U.S. military and they say this, the Department of Defense says this on the record, we're able to do whatever we want here. That is why Guam is such an attractive place for U.S. military installations. And the, the military bases date back to uh, World War II. Um, so the same day that Pearl Harbor was bombed, Guam was bombed. And Guam civilian population, the local population, the indigenous population, Chamorros, were the only civilian population to become a prisoner of war during World War II. So that is a really important um, piece of the story that we're kind of seeing playing out today in the news media with especially the older generations who survived during World War II. They know what, quote-unquote, fire and fury, American fire and fury, looks like. They survived a, uh, nearly three years of Japanese occupation, they survived the bombardment of U.S. bombs before the quote-unquote retaking of Guam at the end of World War II. So for the older generations on Guam right now, these threats are very, very real. The, um, and I can get into a little bit more about um, my understanding in the communities that I was able to spend time with how... Um, how many of them are feeling it. It usually um, is based off of intergenerational, so the older generations feel one way, whereas the younger generations feel another way. However, there's even diversity uh, within that. Yeah, and and how are the, the people responding right now, your contacts in Guam? Um, I mean, obviously, you're talking about the older generation who who lived through that, and you know, and now they're in their, you know, they're in seniors and elders and um, elderly people. So almost a generation um, to be lost um, ha who have had those experiences of, of war coming to their to their island to their home. Um, what do you, what do you see, and what have what have you been uh, hearing from from the folks? Well, I guess one important issue 
again, relating to the older generation, um, U.S. Congress has yet to release war reparations from World War II. So it was agreed upon after World War II. The Japanese government even paid the United States a certain amount of money to uh, provide to the civilian population on Guam because they were held as prisoners of war as war reparations. So a small monetary fund if you survive the occupation. However, that money to this day has not been released for whatever reasons, whether it was lumped into a defense budget bill and um, Senator John McCain said there's no funding unless it's directly related to combat or so many issues have happened. But I think that's a very significant thing to remember when we're talking about and reading up some of these headlines about how the American military will protect you, the American military will provide for you, the American military. That is just one key example of how the United States government has let down this older generation. And many people feel that uh, they're just waiting for time to run out since we are losing the World War II uh, survivor population. Um, for many of the other generations, and I work mostly with young people, so college age um, and young professionals, um, and it's, it's almost, uh, to use a military, militarized term, it's a double-edged sword. It's fantastic now that Guam is getting into the media, that people are asking it. People are Googling, what is Guam? Um, but at the same time, it's how the story is being told, who is telling it, and for what audience. And there are a lot of, thankfully, a lot of reporters now arriving in Guam. But it's turning into this, the, mm, I guess, the dominant narrative that we are so used to. Um, journalists not asking necessarily sensitive questions, you know. Are you prepared to die? Are you... So for a population that is constantly witnessing and being a part of U.S. military war games, uh, weapons testing, um, constant different uh, aircraft over the island. These are really, um, I see it as inappropriate questions to ask. Many of the young people, mostly those who have come to California for college or what they say, leave island to go to school, um, they come back to the island with a much different perspective, saying, wait a minute, how does America still have colonies? How are we supporting this? How are we not getting many of the benefits that were promised to us with this military presence? So for a few of the folks who are working, what they call um, the Independent Task Force, so their goal is to um, educate the population, uh, locals, as well as people overseas um, about the current situation and really provide what independence would look like. They understand that the U.S. military isn't going anywhere overnight, but that they should be able to ha have a seat at the table when projects are discussed, that it shouldn't be a bilateral agreement between the United States government and the government of Japan and not have anyone from Guam present. So they, they see the independence as um, a way to really address some of this militarization and have more of an impact in it. 
um, in how projects are formed, and as well as going through the process of self-determination, which is their inherent right, um, especially being part of the United States, um, but not having the U.S. Constitution apply in full. So because Guam is a territory of the United States, the U.S. Constitution does not apply there. So that is where the, the discrepancy comes. So many of these folks serve in the U.S. military. They go overseas. They go for deployment six, seven times to, quote-unquote, defend democracy and freedom. However, as soon as they return to their island, there is no participatory de democracy, and they have no say uh, how their islands are used. So a lot of the, the, the young folks are really trying to use this time, this 15 minutes uh, of uh, time, to really get that message across that, like, this is a perfect example, a perfect example of basically being stuck in the middle between two world leaders and not having any say or any input in it. And then their argument is this is another reason why to push for independence. Wow. So thank you for laying that out for us um, and, and seeing, really showing how it's, like you said, referred to war games, right? Saying where you have the, who's telling the story, right? Well, the U.S. is saying, well, we're going to, of course, we're going to defend Guam. This is our territory. This is part of the United States. But then Guam, again, having not been given the, the war reparations that they've been promised um, and have been just at the behest of, of the U.S. and the U.S. military since World War II, um, so this independence movement um, that is kind of, would you say it's kind of ramping up at this point? Um, what kind of stage is that at? Do you know kind of where, so the, where they're going the with this? Yeah, with the um, Publicite, there, it is not scheduled. They're in the education stage. So there's several what they call task force set up. So there's those who want Guam to become a state. So there's a statehood task force, which is supposed to educate and discuss all the issues relating to what would happen if Guam became a state. Um, there's the free association task force. So it's similar to the Republic of the Marshall Islands and Palau. So there's a political agreement. Um, it's uh, hopefully created through negotiations and back and forth. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily independence and it's not necessarily statehood. Whereas with the third option, it would be an independent sovereign nation. So the Independence Tax Force actually has been the most proactive in terms of educating the community, um, providing online resources, videos, podcasts. I can share all of this um, on the Facebook page if you would like, direct links. They have been instrumental of reaching the community in appropriate ways. So. A lot of these issues are full of contention, and for outsiders to just come in and dig all of this stuff up without necessarily being welcomed or um, invited can, can don't necessarily get the whole picture. So the Independence Task Force, they're able to reach the, the, the different generations, so reaching the young people with uh, new media platforms, whereas going and talking to the elders in their homes or in their community halls or senior centers. So really 
figuring out the best way it is to have this discussion, to even talk about these ideas. Because so often uh, when you discuss a lot of these complexities about political status, about the militarization, you're deemed unpatriotic, you're deemed ungrateful, you know, the U.S. Marines rescued Guam from the Japanese, you better be thankful. Um, so to directly answer your question, um, they have been doing this work for at least a year, if not more. So monthly meetings with the community, presenting things online. Uh, their next monthly meeting actually is going to be talking about a militarized project. So it's called the Marianas Island Training <laughs> and the MIT. I'm sorry, there's so many of these projects happening, all with different acronyms. But it's basically almost a million square miles around the archipelago that the um, Department of Defense opens up for war games. So these are uh, uh, transnational war games. We have you know, the Japanese military coming over, the Australian Defense Force coming over, doing these joint trainings. Um, this is also in addition to what they call routine freedom of navigation visits. So we have uh, flight crews from Guam flying over to meet up with flight crews who are stationed in South Korea, who then fly together to show a stature of force, if you will, to show support for the allies. So all of these things have been happening um, for years. The task force is now focusing specifically on the, the MIT project. So what type of um, trainings, what type of weapons, what the, the big issue right now is the sonar testing. Okay, so when they do the sonar trainings, um, which actually have been outlawed around in, within Hawaiian waters and off of the state of California um, because of the devastating impact the sonar has on marine mammals. So you have these trainings, and a few days later, you have mass um, whale, uh, amounts of whales washing up on the beach. Now, of course, the Department of Defense maintains that there is no direct correlation, okay? There's no uh, direct correlation that the, the sonar testing and the sonar training itself leads directly to these whales beaching themselves. It is known that the sonar testing interferes with marine mammals' um, location systems. And so whether it's causing them to be disoriented, whether it's causing them to uh, resurface too fast and cause, have the bend, um, I could direct people to um, a few good resources on that. So these are the type of trainings that are deemed illegal in the state of Hawaii, deemed illegal off the coast of California, but um, around the territory of Guam, are going forward. So again, it always seems to lead back um, to the uh, colonial political status that leaves Guam without direct representation and direct democracy. Well, and when we talked about a year ago um, about this mili joint military training 
um, initiative of the Northern Mariana Islands, just to give people a little back, background on that, um, was, was the intention of moving, uh, focusing on two islands in the Northern Marianas, one of which they were going to try to move everybody off of, which wasn't, didn't have very, doesn't have very many people living on it. It's a, it's a volcano. It's an active volcano island. Mm-hmm. And then another island in the Northern Marianas that they wanted to relocate people from different parts of the island and basically saying, you know, say you have to, you have to get off of this part of the island and go to the other part of the island so that we can, um, practice, um, launching, um, basically war games, right? The, the practice and, and launching live fire, live live fire, um, Mm -hmm. across the ocean, around the island, um, supposedly over and beyond and not hitting the coral reefs, but obviously um, endangering the the sensitive coral reefs and all of the wildlife and the people there. And as you were saying, uh, with Guam having one of the highest per capita um, voluntary, um, you know, volunteers to serve in the U.S. military, um, a lot of veterans suffering from PTSD, yeah. uh, being in areas where military joint live firing range practice is happening can be severely disturbing um, for folks who have been in combat before. And especially you're saying like some of the older generation who were actually there during World War II um, when it was under occupation by Japan and uh, being fought over by Japan and the United States. Um, So I'm so glad that we are having this conversation because we can you know, through medias like like Mutiny Radio, um, get other the get the other side of the story out and and try to let people know, you know, from a different perspective, you know, where where the people of Guam fit into this whole you know geopolitical um, you know framework. So to update um, regarding those projects, I guess we could back up a little bit. Uh, so the American foreign policy, um, really dominating the region, is considered the Asia-Pacific pivot, or the pivot to the Pacific, or the Asia pivot, or the numerous names. It was, it's a foreign policy that was really began under Obama, and it's this idea that of, at the time, in 2000, uh, the early 2000s, um, before um, his his election, the idea was things are going to be winding down in the Middle East, so we're going to refocus to Asia. We're going to resupport um, all of our military bases in Japan, um, mainly which are um, stationed in Okinawa. So the islands in the southern Japan considered Okinawa. Um, it hosts 75% of the U.S. military presence in Japan. Large, large percent, and it has 0.6 percent of the land mass of Japan. So, just imagine a highly densely populated urban area with a landing strip right in the middle, and you have offsprays, uh, huge helicopters, huge aircraft going in and out, causing all kinds of commotion all of the time. Not to mention the impact that all of these service personnel mostly young men, have on the community. So you have high rates of 
drunkenness, high rates of uh, violence, sexual assault, sexual crimes, um, really impacting what they call the communities along the fence line. So those are the ones really absorbing this impact. So in 2006, there was a, 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 an agreement between the Japanese government and the United States government to relocate thousands of U.S. Marines from Okinawa to other military bases, other U.S. military bases, because of these high rates of sexual violence, because of these high rates of um, drunkenness. So that was a bilateral agreement in 2006. No one from Guam was asked. No one from Guam was at the table when this decision was made. The, the decision was they were going to relocate the Marines from Okinawa to Guam. So you're talking about an influx. I believe the original proposal was close to 10,000 active duty Marines and their dependents. We're talking about an island that's about 30 miles by 8 miles that already has a significantly very high population um, of U.S. personnel. And there are, in addition to um, Anderson Air Force Base, which has um, been getting a lot of the mention um, in the media right now, you also have two naval bases. You also have uh, the U.S. Army presence. You have the U.S. Coast Guard. So every single branch of the U.S. Armed Forces has a military base on Guam, has a presence on Guam. So you're, with this plan, the influx of more soldiers coming, the infrastructure can't even handle it. So due to the resistance from the local population, partnering with um, legal experts, um, they were able to push back against this plan and downsize it. And now the agreement is it's going to be less personnel and less dependent. The real issue today, which was gaining traction before this story even broke, and what I would really, really like to stress to your listeners and to everyone else, is currently, right now, on Guam, there is one national wildlife refuge. So many say it's the most beautiful beach on island. I happen to agree with that. It is a, a site of a 4,000-year-old fishing village. There are cave paintings. There are um, archaeological sites that haven't even been fully um, documented and discovered. It's a, it's a beautiful wildlife refuge, which also happens to be adjacent to Anderson Air Force Base. So part of this relocation plan of bringing all the Marines to Guam is they're going to need somewhere to train. Train being live fire training ranges. So we're talking about live ammunition, live bombs. Um, there are currently several already on the island of Guam. Um, however, this is a, for a marine project, so the Marines don't want to use the Army live fire range, but don't want to use the, the Coast Guard firing range. These guys don't know how to play together, do they? <laughs> they don't know how to play together, no. And their suggestion for the location of this new live firing range is adjacent and over the National Wildlife Refuge. This is an important thing because the National Wildlife Refuge, which is uh, fish and wildlife, federal land, was actually taken from, after World War II, taken from local families who were never properly reimbursed, all kinds of problems 
problematic issues about it even becoming a wildlife refuge. But now, this past week, Fish and Wildlife issued the Department of Defense a waiver to waive all the environmental regulations and issues, which will then turn in the, the wildlife refuge will become what they call a surface danger zone. So basically it's the area adjacent to a live firing range where potentially live fire could go, although it's not necessarily, quote unquote, the target. So their proposal is that the live ammunition will just go over the beach and go over the wildlife refuge. If you not even discussing the impacts, the environmental impacts, um, and you could just look at Vieques near uh, Puerto Rico or uh, uh, off of Maui in Hawaii. There's time and time again, there's um, research showing the devastating impact, environmental impacts that this cause. It will um, prevent one of the p most popular tourist destinations on islands. So people from accessing this, people from accessing their heritage, accessing their ancestors, accessing these beautiful caves, accessing the most beautiful beach. So there's a group called Save Retidian, and Retidian is the name of the wildlife refuge. In Chamorro, it's Prohendi Latexin, Protect Retidian. Um, and Retidian is R-I-T-I-D-I-A-N. And their goal, they are a direct action grassroots group that is asking the government of Guam uh, appeal to the Department of Defense and put a hold on this construction. The construction is supposed to be completed within August. They're going to bulldoze at least 100 acres of limestone what, forest. There are rare species, uh, plant and animal flora and fauna there. There's medicinal medicine. It's a very sacred spot on the island. And many of the locals feel that you already have live firing ranges. You already have so much of the land. You already have so many other places to train. Why do you need this one as well? So they're asking the officials to put a stall on this decision, particularly since so going back to the northern Marianas Islands, like how you're mentioning those two other islands that are um, slated to become live firing ranges as well, there is currently a, a lawsuit pending um, represented by Earth Justice, the um, legal environmental organization, um, saying that the Department of Defense did not even consider any alternatives for these plans. So basically they said Guam is a good place, it's a territory. We don't have to worry about, quote, unquote, any governments kicking us out. There are islands nearby. We will turn those into live firing ranges. And again, there is already one of the islands in the archipelago, which used to be a safe haven for migratory birds. But in 2012, suddenly there was a waiver issued for that. It's already used as a live firing range. So it's already a target from land, sea, and air. So you have fighter jets taking off from Guam and dropping bombs on this island north in the northern end of the archipelago. So again, the local people, they understand there's a military presence. They understand the military needs to train. But they have, they've had it. How, how many more islands? For the northern Marianas Islands, 
out of all the islands put together, there's about 184 square miles. There is not a lot of land mass. Now, for the Chamorro people, the ocean is a huge part of that. So when a lot of these headlines say this tiny island in the middle of the Pacific, well, Guam is actually next to the Marianas Trench, the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean. So in a way, it's the tallest mountain in the world. So these headlines saying these are just tiny islands out in the middle of nowhere, it is, it is absolutely uh, not the case. So if, I um, don't want to take up too much more of your time, but um, I would just really like to stress that now that people are aware about, of what's happening in Guam and this tit-for-tat between two heads of state, to really seek out resources that interview the local people. And if you can, sign on to this petition. I know a lot of people um, might have uh, petition fatigue, if you will. I, I'm constantly <laughs> getting online requests to sign petitions here and there. Um, however, for my experience for the people of Guam, to have thousands of people from off-island signing on to their petition means that we recognize you, we support you, we're behind you. So while it might just seem like a clicktivism, if you will, to many activists, oh, you know, what you do online doesn't translate into, into real life, um, it actually does, I, I believe, in the Marianas. So the goal is to just put this additional firing range on hold, wait to hear the outcome of the lawsuit against the Department of Defense for failing to consider any other alternatives, and they really believe demilitarization is the answer, not more militarization. It's because of the U.S. military presence that they are a target. Dr. Sylvia Frain, doctor of peace, letting us know what the people of Guam are going through and what kind of uh, war games the U.S. military has been playing with these islands and these people and this environment for years and what has been ramping up here in the past couple of, uh, just even in the past couple of years. Um, where can people access that petition? And we can put it on uh, the Women's Magazine, yeah, Women's Magazine with Global Val uh, web, f Facebook page as well. Um, but do you happen to have the, the link or the information about how to find that Earth Justice petition? Yes. So um, the online petition is it's a change.org petition. Okay. Um, change. And it is Save Ritidian, R-I-T-I-D-I-A-N. Uh, I believe if you just Google uh, change.org in Guam, that should be one of the ones um, that pops up. They currently have about 3,000 signatures, which is a lot for the community. Um, if they could just even get 1,000 more, that will show people's solidarity and support. And um, for, for a lot of the people from um, the islands, like the first step is just to, just to respond to where they are and um, answer those questions first before you can even get into these deep issues. So now that the general public and the international media at least knows, quote unquote, where Guam is, now they're able to discuss the true vision for decolonization and the true vision for demilitarization. 
Well, Sylvia Frayne, I can't thank you enough for calling in to be a voice of this movement to bring light in these dark times. And, you know, when we look at the ugliness that is uh, being tossed all around, the the hopefulness that comes out of it is conversations like this and knowing that we do have access to each other as fellow human beings and are able to support one another and... Um, and try to move in a, in a better direction. So thank you so much for giving us a call in. Uh, welcome back to California. Welcome home. And um, I know that we'll be uh, checking in again about this. Um, also, do you want to talk about, uh, we've got a couple minutes here. Do you want to let people know about the Facebook page that you, that you run um, that, that often gives a lot of information about what's happening in Guam and in the Marianas? Sure. As part of my uh, field work and uh, thesis work for my doctoral studies, um, I decided to just form a, I call it a research-oriented Facebook page. So it's Oceana Resistance, and it discusses and highlights all of the amazing things that are happening, actually, across Oceana in terms of movements for demilitarization and decolonization. The two are often linked. Um, I do not include my voice on it. In fact, I just highlight what so many other people are doing. Um, their amazing work, podcasts, uh, petitions. This past few days, it's just been trying to get all of the headlines um, out so people can see the different, the different ways the story is being interpret interpreted. I also um, privilege Tomorrow Voices and Carolinian Voices because so often... Um, it, like we said, it's the narrative, it's who's telling the story, whose story is this to even tell. Um, I approach my work as what they call scholarly solidarity. However, I, I really recognize my own position as a settler, as a guest there. Um, a fellow colleague who's also doing her PhD there, she terms this as what is settler responsibility. Hmm. So as a guest there it's your responsibility to learn the history it's your responsibility to learn about these issues you can't always depend on the local population for that so it's with this settler responsibility that i really approach this whole project and just try to offer um, support where i can and know when it is time to step back and um, let other voices be heard there's incredible scholars coming out of out of guam and well, thank, thank you, Sylvia Frayne, Doctor Sylvia Frayne, Doctor of Peace and Conflict, but we, but we stress the peace, right? Yes, we do. <laughs> thank you so much for giving us a call in, and we will uh, look forward to your next time when you can uh, give us another update. And we'll put all the links and everything on the Women's Magazine with Global Val Facebook page. And uh, you can also follow Oceania Resistance on Facebook, which I'll also put the link there for. So thank you again, Sylvia Frank. Thank you. Well, folks, there you have it. Um, look at getting the voices of, of the people um, to be elevated above the forces of 
military governments uh, who, you know, want to play war games. Um, so wondering about Guam, I hope you tuned in. The podcast will be on mutinyradio.fm just after the three o'clock hour. I'm Global Val. And remember, when just when your aspirations are outrageous, like trying to change the world and military policy and help people and the environment, just remember, inspiration is contagious. Peace and thank you. And thank you, Sylvia Frayne. And here's a little more music from Mary Isis from Hawaii. Truth is...